um, in the Chumash. Now, one of the prophecies um, about Mashiach that Bilam makes is that he says that Mashiach will be a ruler. Um, he says, Yaakov, as Rashi explains, there'll be a ruler coming from Yaakov. So, the, now a ruler, um, which is, I guess, maybe not a, a term that we're most comfortable with in the modern era, a ruler is different than um, the way we in the modern era think of government. So I just want to speak about this idea of a ruler versus a modern notion of government, and then we'll go a little more deeply into it. Um, the key difference between a ruler and the modern notion of government is the modern notion of government is built, at least conceptually, on the idea of the consent of the government. In other words, what gives the government in a modern country the right to issue laws, restrictions, etc., um, obligations, collect taxes? What gives them that right, um, ethically, morally speaking? And that's the idea that somehow there's, at least again, in theory, the idea that the people that are being governed have consented to be governed. They've agreed to govern, that, that they need government, They've come together and, and agreed on how that system of government should work. And therefore, the people that are in charge, the prime minister, president, people in Congress, whatever it is, they are acting um, on behalf of the people, not just in the best interests of the people. Okay. In contrast, the idea of rulership is that the authority, the sovereignty to govern doesn't derive from the people. Okay. The, the, the reason why the ruler has the right to govern has nothing to do with the consent of the people. It's, um, it's, it does not take their agreement into account at all. Okay. Now you can probably see why in the modern era we have gotten rid of that idea. We don't like the idea that someone should have their, uh, an independent source of authority. Okay. But nonetheless, it does say that Mashiach will be a ruler in that sense, that Mashiach's authority to rule, to, authority to govern doesn't derive from the consent of the government. Okay. He's an independent source of legitimacy. Now, what that means, and this is a very important um, idea, is that when you're talking about a ruler as opposed to the modern notion of government, a ruler, there's a question of what is the scope of their rulership? So if you think of it just in, kind of in the modern, the sense of the modern country, right? So in the modern country, if the government has the authority to govern because of the consent of the governed, then that automatically implies its own limiting principle, right? That only people who've consented to that government, at least theoretically, should be subject to its laws. So generally speaking, who are subject to the laws of a country? Citizens, and those citizens have the right to change the government as they see fit. Again, all in theory, right? Who else, has, who else is subject to those laws? People who choose to enter that country knowing full well that it has certain laws. But we generally look askance at the idea that somehow someone's just entitled to, to rule over someone else, right? That the, 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 power to, the, the power to govern comes from the consent of government, so it's limited to those who've consented. 
But if you have an idea that there's actual, someone has the authority to rule independent of the consent of the governed, you now have a separate question. What is the limit of their governing power? How far does it reach? What is their domain? Okay. Does that make sense? The difference? The, 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 so just to, just to give a, a, an interesting historical example. You've heard of the, um, you ever heard the title the King of France? Yeah, there, was a, there were people who were the kings of France. Yeah, the country of France was the king of France. I've heard this title before. What is the difference between the king of France as a title versus king of the French? How are those different? One seems like it's talking about the country and one seems like it's talking about people. Like one is like talking about the people specifically. Correct. So what happened is like, yeah, correct. So what happened was like this. There was, there was, a, there was someone who was called the king of France. Um, and then he had his head chopped off. It's called the French Revolution. And then they made a, 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 the idea that there's a republic. And then Napoleon took over. And then they got rid of Napoleon. And then a, they decided to bring back the king. However, the idea that the king has his own autonomous authority, that would, you know, after having had this idea of government comes from the consent of the governed, they couldn't just impose the king again. So the idea is that the king is now the king, but he rules or he governs because the people have accepted him as the king. So he's not the king of the country, he's the king of the people, right? Then by applying the idea that the sovereignty rests with the people to some degree or another. And so he couldn't call himself the king of France as if he has this autonomous authority over a certain splotch of planet Earth, but rather there's a group of people known as the French and he has been appointed their leader. But Mashiach is not that kind of a king. Mashiach is supposed to be the kind of king who's actually a ruler. So then the question is, what is the scope? What is the domain? What is the extent of his kingdom? How far does he rule? Now, there's a verse in Tillam, in Psalms, which Rashi actually brings this verse um, in his commentary on this week's Parsha. And the verse describing Mashiach says that Mashiach will rule from sea until sea, miyam ad yam, and minahar from the river ad afse arts, to the ends of the, ends of the earth, the far reaches of the earth. So those are the boundaries, those are the borders of Mashiach's domain from the sea unto the sea, from the river unto the ends of the earth. Okay. Now, the, the commentators explain that that, those, that, that that imagery simply is a fancy way of saying the entire earth, that the, the, the seas represent the south and the north, so that from the north to the south, and the river represents the east, and the edge of the earth represents the west. And so basically this is a fancy and very poetic way of saying that unlike say the king of France, or the king of England, whose domain extends up to certain geographic markers, Mashiach will be a king whose domain encompasses the entire planet. And so it's from north to south, from east to west, and these are just fancy poetic ways of describing that. However, there's a general rule that although the Tanakh, all the scripture, tends to say very basic ideas in poetic language, 
It is also the case that that poetic language is precisely chosen by God to convey a very specific and deeper meanings as well. And so what we'll want to do is examine a little bit what is the deeper meaning that the, the, the um, kingship of Mashiach extends from the ocean until the ocean and from the river into the edge of the earth. That if we want to, want to understand what is the deeper meaning behind this description. So there's actually here a um, few things we need to understand. There's a, what is exactly, what is the deeper meaning that Mashiach is a ruler as opposed to simply someone who governs with the consent of the governed? That's one point. And what is it, why is the kingship being described as specifically from an ocean into an ocean? What is, the, what is the significance of that? And the third, what is the significance of the, of the other parameter from the river until the edge of the earth? And the reason why all of this is important, other than just the general rule of learning Torah, is that as a general principle, everything about the era of Mashiach is a product of how we serve God during exile. Um, to put this in other words, Mashiach is not coming is not a reward, but is, the, but is the actualization of what we've been doing during exile. So if you want to think of a simple example, if you're cooking and you don't pay attention when you're cooking and you do it in a sloppy manner, the food is not going to taste very good, right? That's not a punishment for not um, doing the cooking right. That's because the food you get to eat at the end of the cooking process is the result, is the product that you created through your work in cooking, right? As opposed to say, if you go or you're a chef in a restaurant and you walk away with a paycheck at the end of two weeks, that money is not the product that you produce. It's not something that you actually earn. That's something you're getting in compensation. So Mashiach is not a reward or compensation for our divine service, rather Mashiach is the reality we create through that divine service. Which means whatever is true about the Messianic era actually has to already be something that is being implemented already in the state of exile, already nowadays. So if Mashiach rules, then somehow our service of God has to have this notion of rulership. Right? Mashiach doesn't govern with the consent of the government, he rules. So to, there has to be parallel with us. And if the domain of his rulership is from the sea to the sea, that also has to be paralleled in how we serve God. And if his rulership extends from the river to the edge of the earth, whatever that means, that also has to be paralleled in our service. So these things are not just for the sake of learning alone, but also serve as a guide for understanding how we should approach, approach serving Hashem now, because that's actually how we create the reality of the Messianic era. So we're going to now discuss three points. What does it mean that our service of God has this form of rulership? Number one. Number two, what is the significance that the rulership becomes from, goes from the sea to the sea? And number three, what does it mean that the rulership goes from the river to the edge of the earth? Right? What does that mean in, in terms of our actual um, service of God? And when we are able to do that to a sufficient degree, that actually brings about that reality more globally, which comes about the, which brings about the coming of Mashiach. Okay. Now, if what is the difference between a legitimate ruler and a bully? 
So let's start there. What would you say is the difference between a legitimate ruler and a bully? A legitimate ruler you have respect for, whereas- Very good. And, and what, would be, what, would, what would replace or substitute the substitute for respect in the case of a bully, of a strong man? It's not respect. Fear, fear factor, because they make fear. you feel like you have to do something, not that you actually want to do it. Okay, so we have to, right. so we have to contrast between respect and fear. Okay. Now, what, what they first have in common okay, is that neither of these people, rec- right, they're, they're, not, they're not in these positions because you agreed to it because right, you're consenting to it, and um, you don't, they, they don't work for you. Um, I, I know somebody who likes to say that, um, that, that um, they don't understand why they should show so, show so much respect to the president of the United States. After all, I'm his boss. If you're an American citizen, right? <laughs> the president works for you, right? But a ruler, right, or in contrast, a bully, a strong man, they're not there because you've agreed to, not there because of your consent, right? And you are, to a certain degree, compelled to obey. But there's a very big difference. One uses fear and the other uses respect. Now, what's the difference between respect and fear? What, brings, what creates respect and what creates fear? Okay. Well, the difference between, the difference between them is, is very simple. Fear is entirely focused on yourself. I don't want to get hurt and this person can hurt me. Therefore, to minimize the pain that I might have, I'll suffer, it, it's better to go along with that. Okay, so what is my, so I'm only really concerned with, I'm only really focused on myself. That makes sense? Okay, respect is entirely different. Respect is the presence of this person makes me take seriously things that of not that are beyond um, my petty my petty life. In other words, that if this person wasn't there, I'd be living my life trying to get by, do my things, do what's important to me. But this person, there's something lofty about this person that they exude that comes across that makes me realize that I shouldn't be I shouldn't just be focused on what's in it for me. There's a larger picture. There's things more important than myself. And they are somehow able to convey that. They're somehow able to give off a sense of that through their, through their, through their exaltedness, through their majesty, through something about them that gives me the sense. Life can't be reduced to my own mundane, petty concerns. So what does it mean when we're like supposed to fear God? So, so the, the problem is that, that, that in Hebrew, the word yira, which is translated as fear, actually covers both of these emotions. So, because what they have in common is there is a relative smallness vis-a-vis someone else. So, what does it mean you should fear God? The answer is very simple. Ideally, you should have a sense that God is much greater than you, and that humbles you and gives you a sense that you shouldn't be so preoccupied with your own petty concerns and you should put more focus onto things that are larger than yourself. That would be fear of God in the proper sense. But if you can't muster that, you should at least be afraid that God is going to hurt you instead of you doing something that's more dangerous. That would be fear of punishment. Hasidus generally looks askance at fear of punishment as an overall negative thing. 
it says in, in Chassidus that fear of punishment is the second to worst thing in the world. The only thing worse than fear of punishment is actually sinning. But it's really not a good thing. Because A, it makes you selfish, also creates a negative view of God. But, so, but just using the English, right, we tend to, at least the modern we tend to think of fear in the sense of threat and danger, right? Whereas we tend to think of respect in conjunction with things like exaltedness, loftiness, um, significance. So when you have a sense that someone is, 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 is um, um, instantiating something larger than life, more important than your individual existence, that gives you a sense of tremendous awe, tremendous respect, and that kind of, and that, that has an authority to it, okay? um, which is why, just historically, kings, rightly or wrongly, not every, you know, some people do this very cynically, but the idea is, is the king is supposed to maintain a certain level of awe and prestige so that people have the sense that this is just not a regular person, this is someone in a, a completely higher league. So it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't come to a threat of punishment, but there's a sense of this person is in a higher plane. Now, from the perspective of Judaism, what is it that what is it that the king has um, that allows the king to govern, that entitles the king to govern, um, and that is that they are Mashiach. Now, does anyone know what the translation of the word Mashiach literally means? Anointed. Anointed. Now, what does it mean to be anointed? And no one knows. Anointed, aren't you chosen to be in that yeah. position? So anointed, anointed literally would mean that they would pour oil on someone's head. They would anoint them with oil. Um, and that would be a way of appointing them to a task. So someone is appointed by God to a task through a process of anointing. So what it means to be Mashiach is that this person was anointed, in other words, appointed by God. And a person who's appointed by God and accepts that responsibility, right? They live in a higher plane. They live in a higher way. Let me just give you a, just a simple illustration of this idea. Has anyone ever here been in charge of younger children, like a counselor as a camp or a mentor or something? Okay. When you're given the responsibility that these people are your charges, right? you're responsible for them, right? Other people are counting on you to be responsible for them. Right, does that that creates a shift within you? Right, you feel differently. Right, that you have to carry yourself differently. You have a right. So now imagine that, but multiplied exponentially. That instead of it being that some person appoints you to be in charge of fifteen, I don't know, sixth graders, God Almighty Himself has appointed you to be in charge of all of the Jewish people or all of the inhabitants of the earth. Right, if you really could take that, if you were the kind of person who could accept that kind of burden, right, you would, you would walk with a different walk, you would live a different life, you would feel differently about yourself, you would stop being able to see your life as merely your own little um, splotch of, 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 of existence, but you would have to ha be able to embody a, a larger and deeper perspective, and other people would pick up that, pick that up, okay, and so the king um, as it actually says in Jewish law, someone who has a sense of no one above him other than God and is appointed by God. 
And that's what gives him the, 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 the majesty that it brings out the respect in the people that makes, gives him the power to govern the people. So it's not that they're appointing someone to govern on their behalf a government of the people to a consent, but people respect the, 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 the profound sense of truth that this person is living in accordance with and trying to embody and that responsibility that they carry and, out of respect, and that, that sense of respect gives them their loyalty, gives, makes them feel a sense of duty and obligation towards the king. Okay? Now, when God saw that we weren't very good at having kings, he took away our kings. So we haven't had one in a while. Now, what does that mean if we then apply that to ourselves? Well, while it's true that there is one person who is the Mashiach, it is also true that each one of us has a little spark of Mashiach within us. Well, what would that mean then? That how should we approach our lives? That we've been anointed by God and given a very specific task to be in charge of some part of the world, to improve it, to make it better. And so the same way that we would expect that the king would, would take that divinely appointed task seriously and to heart and be humbled by that and bear that burden, well, that's, that's the same um, attitude we should have to our own approach to life. That at our core, our main focus has to be the fact that we were individually anointed by God and trusted by God for some part of this world to make this world as God intends it to be and to live our lives from that place. That means that we are rulers in our lives and now there's many aspects of ourselves. Not all of our aspects of ourselves are particularly you know, enthralled and we didn't necessarily take, a, take a, a vote and ask if that fits our personality and our temperament. But the idea is to accept that responsibility and bear that burden with, 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 a, with, a, with a humility. That's what makes a person a ruler within their own life, within their own approach to, within their own practice of Judaism. And that's that first step is that instead of Judaism being an outgrowth of what I want and what I desire, right? That's like the consent of the governed. It's rather, no, I, my Judaism comes from the fact that there's a party that was divinely appointed to take charge. And the rest of me is able to respect that. The rest of me is able to appreciate that. The rest of me is able to acknowledge that. Okay. And then the question is, how to actually where, bring that about? Where is that? Where's the domain of that, that sense of responsibility? How does, it, how does it manifest in our lives? But this starting point, that it's not that Judaism outgrowth of what I desire and what I want based on my temperament, but it starts with a sense of a divinely appointed um, responsibility that I am in some small way, my own personal Mashiach over my own life. That's the... That's the starting point. Does that make any sense? Or did I completely lose everybody? It's hard to tell with Zoom. Hard to read people's body language. Okay. I see I nods. This is from like before, like a little bit before. Like about, like why was it that we were so bad with kings? Why are we bad with kings? Well, I could, you know, be flippant and saying it was, it was the old generation and, you know, the old fogies, they always mess things up for us young people. So it's their fault. Um, <clears throat> but more, more to the point, um, 
one of the one of the issues um, that is that people have to come to things on their own. They have to come at their own pace. You can't rush them. This is, I'll give you two examples. One is in teaching. If you try and rush the student through the lesson to get to the final conclusion, they're not really gonna understand it, okay? Um, in general, this is, a hard, this is one of the difficulties of teaching, right? It's different students work differently. So one reason why I actually detest teaching on Zoom because a lot of the way to pace yourself is to pay attention to like the body language of students and you know subtle things that you really can't pick up remotely. But if you rush something from point A to point B to point C and the student isn't actually doing it at their pace, they're not gonna be with you at the end of the process. Okay? Similarly, in like say if you have a relationship, you might know what the other person is doing that is like messing up the relationship. But if you just simply go outright and tell them, even if they can hear that, and even if they accept that, even if they try and implement it, at the end of the day, they're gonna slide right back to where they were before. Because it's not something that they've come to a realization on their own. And so you can think of a learning or relationships as a lot of times as one person catching up to where the other person was to begin with. And that, and that has its own built intention. And so you have a similar thing with God. God takes us out of Egypt. He does the miracles. He gives us the Torah. We have a temple. We have prophecy. We, it's, it's all, you know, and at the end of the day, the people are not able to live up to that. And so basically starting, um, arguably, you, know, you can debate when, when this big shift happens. Well, let's say the destruction of the first temple. From that point on, we start more and it really kicks off heavily after construction of the second temple, but even at the first, even after the first temple, where God basically pulls back to a large degree and says, okay, now you've got to catch up. You have to work this through at your own pace. Um, and when that happens, then we get to the coming of Mashiach. Um, and so you see actually a lot of extremism in like the, the first temple period that just doesn't exist anymore. You have people worshiping God and having prophecy and then going out and, and, and worshiping idols. Um, and it's just hard to imagine how you can have this, this, this huge extremism from, from, from the highest spiritual um, revelation to the lowest and most heinous sins in the same society and sometimes even the same person. Whereas now we tend to not necessarily have those kind of wild swings back and forth. Um, so that's the, that, that's a, that's a more, um, answer to the point. But um, I just prefer to blame the previous generations rather than take responsibility for my own problems. Somehow I think that that's going to work well to solve, you know, make, make my life better. Okay. So now if we're starting with this point that Judaism really in order for it to thrive the way it's supposed to, it has to come to this, the sense that I'm anointed by God. Not this is what I chose for myself, but in some sense, this is what the creator of the universe chose for me. And do I accept that responsibility? Do I bear that responsibility, right? That's really what's task called upon a true king. And that's, we all have to be kind of kings in our own lives. Now, what is the scope? What is the domain of that rulership? So we have two expressions. One is from, river, from ocean to ocean, and the other is from the river to the edge of the earth. So the first thing to notice is that in the first expression, from ocean to ocean, from sea to sea, there's no earth being mentioned. 
It's just the ocean. Okay? Whereas in the second expression, the earth is mentioned. Now, why is that significant? Well, Hasidus teaches that in general, the symbolism of the sea versus the land is the difference between internal versus external. To explain, the sea has fish and all sorts of other creatures. And the dry land has all sorts of animals. And if we look in the Chumash, it says that the fish were actually created from the sea and the land animals were created from the land. Okay? So it's not simply that those are the places where those creatures live, but they are actually created out of those things. And we find something very interesting is that the sea creatures were created from the sea, that's their source, but they stay within the sea, right? So if you look at the ocean from the top, you can't even tell there's anything in it. Whereas the creatures from dry land, they don't live in the actual earth. They, they live on top of the earth and separate from the earth. And so the earth represents as the idea that something has been externalized, has been put out there. It's, been, it's, it's, it's outside of the self. Whereas the sea represents things that are generated and stay contained within the self. So just on, on a very, very simple level, sometimes we say that the sea alludes to thought, whereas the earth would then allude to what? The physical. Well, no, I'm not, if, 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 if my thinking is the sea, that's hidden within myself, what's the same thing, corresponding thing, but it's not hidden within myself? It's externalized, it's brought out. Would it be action? Or feeling? Good. But the, the words, yes, yeah, speech because speech would be the exact parallel. So you'll find now we're not we're going to go a little bit deeper here, but in many Hasidic discourses, the sea is thought and 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 the and the and speech is the dry land. And some actually would cut it a little finer and say, well, actually, in speech, there's overtly what you're saying and then there's the meaning of what you're saying that other people don't really pick up on right when you're saying something there's a level of what you mean that only you appreciate and then there's what the listener appreciates so you can even cut speech into do and say there's an inner part of speech that the speaker understands but the listener doesn't that would be the sea and then there's the part that even the listener understands and that's called the dry land but the, the land always represents what's externalized what's brought out what's revealed what's what's outside the self in whatever context we're talking about, and the C represents the opposite, what's internal, what's hidden. Okay. Now, so, but we have two C's here. It says we have from C unto C, okay? Which means if we're talking about something that's kind of contained within the person themselves, as opposed to things that are outside the person, we still have a range of those things. And what that means is that we can, we can take our Judaism, we can actually divide it into two. There's Judaism that are, the way we're approaching Judaism is that Judaism is, the scope of Judaism is ourselves. To put this in very like goal-oriented terms, a successful Judaism is measured by how well we're doing. And a failure in Judaism can also again be measured by how well we're doing. If we're not doing so well in our Judaism, our Judaism is a failure. If we're doing excellent in our Judaism, our Judaism is a success. But we're looking at ourselves. The effect we have on the world outside of us, that's not really part of it. 
And then there's another way of looking at it, which is the idea that no, Judaism is not measured by its effect on you. Judaism is measured by the effect you have on the world around you and other people and the world in general. So you have this more internal Judaism, the C, right? The Judaism is it applies only to oneself. And then you have Judaism that's externalized. It's Judaism that's all about influencing others. That's the land. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about each group separately. First, Judaism as it's within ourselves, and then Judaism and the land. So Judaism itself is that we have the, it's from C to C, we have two C's, meaning that there's a range of things that are within ourselves. And what Chassidus explains is that there's actually that range of different parts of ourselves has two extremes there's like the 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 upper extreme and the lower extreme so there's the highest part of ourselves and the lowest part of ourselves and that's what's represented here by the two c's and the idea is one might think that you can focus on one of these extremes and then it'll have a trickle down effect onto the other extreme and that's not correct in other words, um, in order for us to have a, a proper Judaism, we have to put effort onto both extremes and then, then things work. Let me explain to you just a simple analogy. Okay. Imagine you have a bunch of books that you want to stand upright. Okay, not like pile up, but stand upright. Okay? Um, and they're not so thick. Okay, so not like big tomes you could just stand upright on their own, right? So what keeps, you know, what keeps all these thin books standing up, right? Is that the book next to it is standing up, right? Right, like on a bookshelf, right? What's the problem though? By the time you get to the last book on the row, what's keeping that book up, right? Not another book, because then it would go on forever. So what's keeping that last book on the row up? The shelf. Right, you need like you need something that's not a book, right? Something, a bookend, the, the wall, the shelf, right? Something, right? But if you only have one of those on one side, then all the books can't stay upright, right? I don't know if you ever tried doing this, right? You have like half a bookshelf full, right? So upright, 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 and then the last book or two, you have to put an angle so that the whole thing doesn't fall over. If you want all the books to be upright, you need, um, you need something holding up at both ends. Does that make sense? So too, if there's two, there's, we have many aspects to ourselves, but they kind of, they, they, they have, a, they have a, a, a order to them. And there's the upper end and the lower end. If the upper and the lower end are in place, what will happen? Everything will be in alignment. But if the upper end is not in place and only the lower end or the lower end and not the upper end, then things are going to fall apart. And that's the idea is that there's these two extremes. Within myself, within the sea, there's the upper and the lower end. Now, what are the upper and lower end? The upper end is what is called in Chassidus Chachma. Now, Chachma is part of our intellect, but it's a very specific part of our intellect. It's not what we understand. Okay? In other words, if you are confused, that's not necessarily a lack of chachma. Okay. Um, if you're ignorant, 
That's not necessarily a lack of chachma. If you don't have the proper perspective, the proper approach, it's not so much what you think about, but how you think about it, then you lack chachma. So let me use just a simple example. You guys remember taking science in high school? Okay. Did you have any classes where you learned about the scientific method? Okay. To learn like, how does science actually work? Okay. Now, what's, now when, when, you, when you're talking about how science actually works, you're not learning about a specific thing, like say, gravity or, or chemistry or, or cells. What are you, what are you learning? What are you learning when you're learning the scientific method? You're learning sort of how they gather information to um, lead to certain theories and ideas that are basis of, you know, biology, chemistry, all these things. Right. So you're learning an approach. You're learning how to approach things with your mind. That makes sense? Now, the, the process. Right. Right. So now... This is really what Chachma is. Chachma is how you approach things with your mind. So you might be very confused because it's very complicated and you haven't figured it all out yet. Okay, fine. You might be ignorant because you just haven't read the material. Fine. But if the way you approach something is wrong, well, then, then, then it's hopeless. Then, then there's no point, right? There was, there was once a... Um, uh, um, they used to do this thing um, to check if somebody was a witch. How do you check if someone is a witch? This Which a, method? Well, so there, there, was, a, there was a skit, um, I believe it was done by Monty Python, to illustrate the ridiculousness. But basically, the argument goes like this. Since the punishment for witches is burning, we know witches burn, right? And wood burns, so therefore, witches are made of wood. And wood floats, so therefore, witches float. So if you throw the, the suspected witch in the lake, and she drowns, she's clearly not a witch. But if she floats, then she's clearly a witch and should be burned. Now, right, the problem, what makes that funny is that the methodological approach to that is just ridiculous, right? That is not, it's not, it's not like any particular thesis there is like, what makes it funny is not that the thesis is false, it's that the, the whole, it's, it's a complete lack of hunger, it doesn't make sense as a way of approaching the problem, okay? And there are different schools of thought. There are different ways to think about things. Okay? So now I'm going to make a test on everyone's chachma. Okay? You ready? Please explain to me the causal chain that leads to rain. So if I want the end result to be rain, what is the, what is the outline of the basic steps that lead to rain? No one knows how it rains? The sun goes away, the clouds go dark, and it starts to rain. Okay. Or are you talking about like the evaporation of the water and then them forming the clouds and all of that, not, all of that stuff? I'm being intentionally very vague to see which direction your mind approaches the problem from. That's what this is a test of, right? You could, you could think of it in a very you know, in, 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 
in, in a very physical sense, right? Or rain comes from condensation of clouds and condensation of clouds comes from evaporation, right? Now, we, in our prayers, three times a day during the rainy season, we pray for it to rain. Yeah? Now, assuming that that's not just completely ineffective, what would that mean? What is the causal process by which it rains? Hashem decides to let it rain or not. And what, what is an influencing factor in whether he decides to let it rain or not? Our prayers. Our prayers. Now, this is the test of one's Chachmah. If somebody asks you, how does it rain? Does your mind immediately go to the relationship between you and God and God controlling the universe and rain and prayer? You start to think about how to approach the problem that way? Or does your mind immediately start thinking of evaporation and condensation? If you, if you are sick, does your mind immediately think first and foremost doctors or first and foremost God, has the, God is the one who heals all flesh? Now, I'm not saying, and this is what you're I'm not saying that there's no place for the other idea. It's not about the ideas. It's about how does your mind try to approach the problem? And so the first place, the highest place, is what is our approach to processing reality, to making sense of reality? Is it a God-centered approach? Or is it not a God-centered approach? God-centered approach can still have science in it. But the question is, what's the center? What is, what is the methodology that my mind uses to make sense of the world? Is God the central focus, focal point of that? Or is God maybe an idea that somehow you know, also fits in there if there's room for him? And so the first place that the internal Mashiach within us needs to really um, have governance over is over the Chachma, that our internal sense of Mashiach puts God at the forefront of trying to make sense of our lives and trying to understand how to solve problems. Okay. What's at the other extreme? The other extreme is action. The other extreme is just doing. We often underestimate the importance of just actually doing the right thing. Doing absent understanding, absent inspiration, absent even commitment. I'm not talking about being committed to doing, just the actual doing of something. That the power of our actions as a feedback onto the rest of us is something that, that, that has a stabilizing effect. So one extreme is how, we, how do our minds approach reality at all? That's chafma. That's one aspect of the internal side. And the other aspect is, what are we doing? Because if we're not doing the right thing, it's like the books that are being, have only one bookend, they all fall down on the other side. And conversely, if we're doing all the right things, but the way we approach life is not centered around God, it'll all fall up out the other end. And so this sense of God-given responsibility to rule over ourselves has to be directed at these two ends. What am I doing? Am I, am, I, am I acting in a godly way? And am I approaching making sense of reality, life, and problem solving in a God-centered way? If we take control of those two things, everything else starts to sort itself out and put itself in alignment. which I'll be honest, is much easier said than done, right? Because putting the way you think in order and putting the way you act in order um, are not easy. 
But to the degree we do them, then how we feel and how inspired and how committed and all those other things, they will, they will align themselves in accordance. Uh, Rabbi, I have a question. Um, when you're talking about how, training how you think, essentially, um, mm -hmm. can you also help your children to yes. think that way as well? Yes, and you should. I encourage you to do so. Um, the, a good way to do that is by, oh, see, one of the things you've raised is that the, the, the premises in, in, our, in the questions that we ask our children or that we ask in our own minds, they cultivate um, how our minds work. Um, one of the reasons, by the way, why learning Hasidus is so important, and I mean learning Hasidus not in the context of someone giving a class, but actually taking a Hasidic text and learning it, is because not just the, not because of the ideas, but the questions. Because the premises of all the questions are questions. They all, all the questions in Hasidus take God for granted. They start with God and Torah and mitzvahs as the premise and then have a question. And so working through those questions, even if you don't even fully understand all the answers, over time starts to reshape your mind into thinking things that way. Similar to the way that if a person reads enough scientific art, articles and, and, and arguments, their mind starts to think in a more scientific way. And you can do that with, with your children, right? Um, you know, if you have small children, it's really easy, which is that you just ask them leading questions that they don't know the answer, they have to think about the answer, but the fact you've put the question in that way. Um, like one of my favorite questions to ask a child, um, what is more precious to Hashem? Torah or Jewish people? So the child immediately, usually if they get, you know, go to Jewish school, they usually say, often the Torah. And then you ask them, well, why did Hashem give us the Torah? And the child has to think about that for a second. And you know what the child starts to pick up on? Well, if the most precious thing to Hashem is the Torah, and he gives the Torah to us, then that must mean, like, who do you give your most precious things to? Someone's even more important to you. And that, like, you know, even the four or five-year-old, they can... You know, but the thing is not to tell it to them. The thing is like to ask leading questions. And obviously, as people get older, you have to, the leading questions have to become more age-appropriate. Right? Which is different than imposing, this is the truth. That doesn't, that doesn't shape a mind. Because then that comes to realizations so it sticks with them. Right, right. And then they use that to then examine the next thing in life and so on and so forth. But you can also do that to yourself, right? Like I said, people don't say Okay. But you could have a thing where you're totally making sure that the way you're approaching life is God-focused because you have a sense, yes, I have a God who gives responsibility to make sure that God is the center of how I try and make sense of things and solve problems. And you're trying to ensure that you're acting the way you're supposed to act. And that's very nice. But what about the rest of the world? Chassidus has the famous analogy that... Um, it's called the, the, the tzaddik and pelt, which in Yiddish means the, the tzaddik wearing a fur coat. Because if it's cold, you can warm yourself in one of two ways. You can warm yourself by putting on a coat, in which case you're warm, but no one else is. Or you can light a fire, in which case you're warm and everyone else is. And so the question is, do you suffice with merely taking control of your own personal Judaism? Or do you then go a step further and try and influence others around you? And that's that second part that it says that, that Mashiach rules from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, 
the symbolism of the river is that the first time we encounter the river is in the story of the Garden of Eden. And contrary to popular belief, the Garden of Eden was not an Eden. Why was it called the Garden of Eden if the Garden was not actually an Eden? Anyone know? It was called the Garden of Eden because out of Eden there was a river. A river there was a river that, that came from Eden and it flowed into the garden to water the garden. So what was giving the garden its water and therefore enlivening the garden was the river from Eden. So it was called the Garden of Eden. The garden that was being enlivened by the river from Eden. And so there's the idea that Eden represents the truth of godliness and the garden represents the world. But a garden is a beautiful place, a place you want to be in. So the idea that the world is God's garden means it's a godly place, it's a beautiful place. But it only is the way because it's being watered by the river. The river which flows out of Eden into the garden. So it has to be this flow out of the godliness, which is the person who's you know, living life as they should. There has to be a flow out into the rest of the world to make the rest of the world a garden for God. Just like the river goes from Eden to water the garden and make things grow and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the question is, is a person feel a sense of completion and satisfaction when their house is in order, when their life is in order, when they've taken control of themselves and their Judaism is as it should be, is that sufficient for them? Well, then they're not really bringing about, they're not really doing Judaism that brings about the coming of Mashiach. It has to then be now that you are, now that you have turned yourself into an Eden, you need the river which flows out of Eden to water the garden. You need to then have this idea of, of sharing and influencing others. And one might think, okay, well, it's enough to influence others. How, how far away do those others have to be? What's the limit? How out, far outside of myself do I have to influence? When can I say I've done enough? So what does the verse say? It says that, that Mashiach rules from the river until where? I remember what the end of the verse was. The ends of the, the, ends ends of the, of the earth. Okay, so how far out of yourself do you have to influence? As far as you can. As far as you can. There's no point in which you can say that's far enough. Beyond that point, it's not my business. So there's one aspect here of like getting your own house in order. But there's other thing is that not sufficing with yourself, but actually sharing and spreading. But even that, one can mistakenly think that up to a point is my responsibility and afterwards it's not my responsibility. And the answer is if, if there is still a place where you could reach and shine godly light and you haven't done so, then your, your Mashiach has not ruled to the fullest extent that it's supposed to. So this sense that God has given me a God, I have a God-given responsibility to bring about a, a, a godly dominion is first over myself by focusing on how I think about things, how I make sense of my approach in conjunction with what I'm doing practically. That's from the C to C, but not sufficing with myself, reaching out. Right? to water others, like the river that reaches out from Eden to water the garden, and not sufficing with only so much out, only to a limited extent, but actually reaching to as far as possible. 
And we live Judaism that way, coming from this point of the Mashiach within, from sea to, ruling from sea to sea, and from the river to the edge of the earth. That, that limited personal redemption is what catalyzes and brings about the actual total redemption of the actual Mashiach. Okay. So it turns out that in, in, in this one little description, you have a, a, a framework for building and growing the entire Judaism. And each person can know for themselves, you know, which is the, for me, the weaker point here? Is it the God, sense of God-given responsibility as the base of my Judaism? Is it, uh, you know, that I've put focus on what I do, but not enough focus on how I approach things mentally? Or is it the reverse? Am I too locked up in myself? Or am I comfortable sharing, but only to a limited extent in a limited context? Right? We all can find areas in this rubric, in this framework, of where we need to improve, what we need to strengthen in order to actually bring about the coming of Mashiach. All right, any questions? Like, how does, I'm just confused on like how Mashiach, like actually, you said it's like the, not the results, but like, I don't know how to say it, but like of us in Gullus, like how is that actually, like how does that practically apply? So reality is very different than what we think it is. Would, would, you, uh, would you accept that as a, as a starting point? Sure. Okay, so just as a quick illustration, um, six months ago, did you think your life was going to look what it looks like now, day to day? Definitely not. Okay, right. And that's just because of some virus we didn't know about, right? If there's, right, so the fact that there's so much, something that we don't know about can change the whole equation. Okay. Now, the analogy that's used for this is that when, um, when someone is born, right before they're born, they're not, I mean, on the one hand, they're there, right? Because the fetus is there in the, in, in the mother's womb and etc. But there's not really a person. It's like, you know, the day before the day before the baby is born, it's just the mother, the father, right? There's no there's no baby. Right? I have several children, and before each one's born, we've got like a full family, and then the next one's born, it's like now there's another person there, and that's they're a whole new person. So, and it's not that they weren't there before the birth, but they were there in such a way that you couldn't realize. Not I mean, you intellectually could understand it but you don't relate to them as, as an actual person. You can't interact with them as a person. And therefore all the dynamics in the family function as if that person isn't there. And then they're born and everything changes. And after the fact, it seems like the most obvious and normal thing to the point that after the fact, it's hard almost to remember what life was like before a particular child was born. It was like when the dynamics weren't that, didn't have that person involved. Um, and so Mashiach's coming is compared to this idea of childbirth, that right up until Mashiach is actually here, it's very hard to imagine how you transition from where we are to that state. But after it's happened, it seems like the most obvious thing that that's what would have happened. Um, and it, that kind of sense, you can think of anything that when we discover something new in the world that radically changes how the world works, retroactively, it makes sense all along that it would have, and it makes sense that there would be a virus that we don't know how to deal with and it would change everything, right? And, but it's just very hard to put, see reality different from the way you've experienced it up until this point. So um, when we live life the way we are supposed to, then that birth process happens 
And then after the fact, it'll, we'll be able to see the continuity and how what, what way we live now created the reality of Mashiach. But living now, it's very hard to imagine how that process actually works. I hope that answered the question. If it didn't, I apologize. All right. Um, I will see those of you who are on this class on Tuesday for Tanya. I will see you then. And if um, you're not there, then I won't see you then. Thank you, Rabbi. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.